0: Is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this happens to be National Hemp Month, and Governor Josh Green last week announced that he's allowing a hemp bill to become law without his signature. We talked to State Representative Dee Morikawa about the legislation that she introduced, which she says hopefully will clear the way for the development of an industry that many have worried about uh, legal implications. Uh, Morikawa says it took one visit to a Kaua'i farm in her district to convince her that this was something worth fighting for.
1: It repeals redundant regulations. That was probably the biggest barrier. And it also forms a task force, which is really important to figure out what the future of hemp in Hawaii is, will be. And, you know, there's still a lot of safeguards for protecting the public. And labeling is also a big deal. But It it pretty much gets rid of those regulations, the duplicative regulations.
0: So do you think that has been holding back movement on this?
1: Oh, yes. Big, big deal. Even though Kauai has the smallest market, I mean, the smallest number of hemp farms, when I visited the hemp farm here, I could see how their hands are just tied in getting their products out to market. I think that the products that come out of hemp, you know, being that it does provide food, building material... You know, the, an important thing, too, for me was when we we're dealing with the pesticide issue a while ago, this the hemp was said to be a soil remediation, which to me is a really big deal. And, you know, we, we've seen so much sales of CBD products and other hemp products come from outside of the state. And it's just a shame because we have probably the best climate, you know, anywhere to grow this product. And we really should figure out how we can be make it sustainable here in Hawaii, yeah?
0: Well, we've been talking about alternative products for who knows how long, and yes. nothing has materialized or very little right. has.
1: So That's why this task force is going to be very important, because they're going to be the ones to determine what infrastructure is going to be needed to see how we can manufacture this in the state.
0: Well, talk about this task force. What has to happen mm-hmm. in order to make this a reality?
1: Well, the task force is going to get formed. That's what the bill does. And there will be funding for that. So that's huge. And it'll give them a couple of years to figure out, you know, the steps to take in the future. But now at least we can get the hemp produced here by these farms and sold here locally. We need a bigger, more help in trying to figure out how to manufacture bigger things.
0: Give us a snapshot. You know, where are the farms and uh, what's happening now?
1: There's about 125 licenses in the whole state, and uh, half of those are on the big island. Oahu, I think, has 30 percent. Maui is the next with 23, but uh, Kauai is the smallest. It's just because of the regulations, they haven't been really able to invest in making this crop a big, bigger industry. But now I think this is where it begins with this bill. It helps them to figure out uh, or get at least get investments if there is a future here in Hawaii. What got you
0: interested in this? I
1: visited the farm, the farm here on Kauai, and I was so impressed. And, you know, just talking to them about the future that hemp has here, as small as our farm is in my district, I was impressed. And at that time, like I told you, I was uh, into the pesticide issue, and I just, you know, felt that that product was something that could help us clear out our soil with, you know, the heavy use of pesticides we've had in the past. And when I found out more products could be made out of this, it was just very exciting. So I tried to get involved with it early on, not knowing that the regulations were still holding them back.
0: Well, it's interesting because there's lots of concern about all these chemicals that are getting down into the groundwater. Or mm-hmm. if there's a chemical that is making it difficult to grow other crops,
1: this will heal the land. That's what I've been told. that That's what I've been seeing. I'm sure the Hemp um, Association, they have a group. They're on top of those things. But I think what's more important is for us to deal with our state because we're so different and we're so far away from everybody else that this is one industry that I think can help. When we talk sustainability, I think this is the industry that will help do that. This became um, legal at the federal level only in 2018, I think it was. And the state still have to figure out the farm bill was um, passed back then, removing that from the definition of marijuana. And then the states had to figure out how they would make it legal, I, I believe. And we didn't quite get there because there always was that fear of mixing marijuana with hemp. So
0: you think that maybe the timing is right, that things are, are aligned better?
1: Now with this bill, I think we can finally move forward. And I can understand the governor's hesitation to pass this, which has in the past been the issue with law enforcement. But I believe that's why he decided that you know he didn't want to sign off completely on it because it's, there's more benefits to this, but he would let it go into law without his signature. And I, I really thank him for that because early on in the session, we, I did have his commitment to pass something that came through. And did he share his hesitation in signing off on it? Oh yeah, it was all it was all about the enforcement part. There was always that issue about how they were going to make sure that the enforcement agencies would be able to do what they had to do, whatever that was.
0: So, who takes the lead on this then?
1: It would be the Department of Ag and the Department of Health. They both are going to have funds. One would be the Department of Health is going to ha- have to hire a hemp consultant, and then the Department of Health will also be able to hire a toxicologist to make sure that um, they can deal with the, the health issues.
0: And what kind of funding health are we talking about with these programs?
1: Uh, I believe it's in the 50000 mark, and it expires. It's not permanent funding. But just to help this industry get off the ground.
0: So hopefully then you've got these departments that will run with this.
1: I sure hope so. And knowing that, you know, like I said, they all about sustainability. The governor has that in his priorities also. And he has a new administration that seems to be eager to go in that direction.
0: You go to some of these stores and you see, you know, hemp seed for sale that comes in from, you know, other states.
1: That's another thing that's important with this bill is it's going to make sure that all the labeling is correct. Everyone must label their products according to where the hemp is from.
0: So as you look down the road, how soon do you expect this industry to get some traction?
1: Well, I hope within the next two years, they'll have at least a clear picture of what the future is going to be for hemp. But in the meantime, they're like I know on the Kauai farm, they've got their crops, they've got their stock of um, hemp ready to process and they're just waiting for the green light.
0: Anything else you want to add just about hemp and, and the possibilities?
1: I'm just fortunate that my bill, as small as it was, it turned out to be the selected bill to put everything in. I've always supported hemp, so this is this is a good thing for me and I'm happy that Senator Thielen, I hope, will see that she's always promoted hemp is finally gonna become a reality.
0: That was Kauai Representative Dee Morikawa talking to us about what's possible for hemp as a diversified uh, crop in the islands now that Governor Josh Green has decided to let a hemp bill become law without his signature. Morikawa acknowledged that former Republican Representative Cynthia Thielen was a fierce advocate for hemp as a viable product. The Grassroot Institute of Hawaii released its take on the costs of rail following the grand opening over the 4th of July, a holiday weekend. Rail critics have expressed concerns about the high cost of construction and the high operating costs that we placed on our children and our children's children. The Institute's analysis points to the low ridership numbers. It says for every $3 ride, taxpayers will be subsidized subsidizing the costs by $51. Joe Kent is vice president of the Institute. He shared his reaction to his ride on Skyline. He joined us in studio last week, Friday. When did you jump on?
2: Oh, I went on yesterday, actually, and uh, went all the way out to Kapolei from the Aloha Stadium. And there were very few people on it, though. I was surprised. It was only 10 or 20 people most of the time. And at times I had the whole train all to myself. So (laughs) I was thinking, you know, what are we running these trains for if there's so few people riding them right now? What
0: time of the day was that?
2: That was 5 p.m. So, you know, four or five is rush hour (laughs) time. And just a few people on there, I was kind of scratching my head wondering, is this like some sort of fluke or an anomaly? Is it a holiday? (laughs) But it wasn't. And so if so few people are riding them, my concern is the cost. You know, think about last year, we wouldn't have opened the trains last year because we would have had so few riders. Well, This year is the same thing. We have so few riders and the cost to run these things are $85 million every fiscal year. And so if you divide that by the riders, it's about $54 per passenger that's a huge amount of money. It would almost be cheaper to just give everyone Uber or Lyft rides for free.
0: And you calculated that based on the initial ridership?
2: Yeah. They were saying it's around 4,000 on the weekend. So I took the highest number that they have and assumed, projected that out for the year. And that Is about $54 per passenger, which, if you compare to the mainland, light rails on the mainland, it's way, way, way higher. It's the highest in the nation. The next highest are Cleveland, San Jose, and Seattle, which are at $19 per passenger.
0: You just want taxpayers to understand the implications of going forward.
2: Yeah. We are about to run the rail nearly empty for a few years. Could be maybe seven years before they finally finish the rail to the city center. And every year, presumably, that's another $85 million. And this cost is racking up. That could be half a billion dollars that we spend on running the train nearly empty. And for taxpayers, this project has been painful, you know, $10 billion and over budget and, you know, over schedule. But now we're running it even more over budget with these $85 million costs every year. So I'm just wondering if it might be smarter to just not run the rail until it's finally completed. And supposedly, when it is completed, the numbers will go up. And so, you know, that would justify a lower cost per passenger. But taxpayers have been already paying through the nose on this, and now we're just paying more.
0: Well, the rail has to work for you as an individual. You know, does it make sense? Is it going to be faster? Is it less stress? And I think, you know, the taxpayers have to really make an effort to figure that out. Where do I park? You know, do I get dropped off in the morning? Do I get picked up? You know, is that doable? You know, but it's maybe not going to work if you have a family and you've got to take kids to, you know, sports things in the afternoon, you know, that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to really take some effort.
2: Yeah. I think everybody wants everyone else to ride the rail, (laughs) but for their own lives, you know, They don't always want to go on the rail stops. They don't want to ride a bus to the rail and then ride a rail to another bus and then take a bus to where they're going. You know, we've changed the bus routes now to go towards the rail so that just for the very fact of trying to get the numbers up on the rail system. And so now some people may find a quicker route, but some people might actually find their route to take longer because they have to take all these stops. And they're trying to get Department of Education students on. I heard yesterday about a plan to try to give DOE students a free rail ride, but that just pushes the cost even more onto the taxpayer, of course. So there's no way to hide the cost of this. You know, Someone has to pay for the $85 million every year, and that's taxpayers. Now, of course, into the future, they're talking about going beyond The city center and going to Ala Moana and maybe UH and even Waikiki, we're hearing about. The rail officials are talking very confidently about this, like this is the plan, this is what we're going to do. But in the public, I don't think that the conversation is really happening. No one else is talking about going beyond, and that beyond also includes costs. So the only way they could go beyond is by. Extending the surcharge, increasing taxes somehow. And we have to remember the hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that have been taken out of the economy for this. The question we always have to ask is, what else could the money have been spent on? I've had train rides, the trains all to myself, basically. It's it's a nice ride. You get the train all to yourself almost. But what else could the money have been spent on?
0: What else? Do you think the city could be doing to increase the ridership? If we want to make this work, we paid out so much already. I doubt they're going to tear it down. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, what else can we do to make it work?
2: We're at a point where we're just trying to cut costs as much as possible because it's been kind of an embarrassment that the costs have run over so much. You know, this we are now the poster child in the U.S. for over budget boondoggles. And so cutting costs should be the priority. Opening the rail when it's finished would be the best way to figure out how to get more riders on and to actually use the taxpayer dollars well per person. But it just seems funny to run it nearly empty for the next seven years.
0: I know there is a concern about the Highlands parking structure because the central oahu people who might want to jump on this thing you know from mililani they don't have anything yet you know the concern about not enough park and rides it, it is startling to see that image of where it ends in the in the ag field out on the yeah. west side it, it it's almost like the image it starts <laughs> nowhere and really goes nowhere
2: the rail leaders right now are in a sense hatchet men <laughs> they're trying to cut back on the costs, you know, the rail was $12.5 billion for a time, and now they've cut that back a couple billion by stopping short and and cutting the parking garage and, and other things. That's a good thing that we're cutting back. We're saving taxpayer money on a questionable project, and at the same time, the flip side of that is when you ride the rail, it's not as good as it could be, you know? We don't have the Pearl Highlands garage. It doesn't go all the way to the mall. And so um, the complaints are um, valid, but the flip side of that is we are saving taxpayers money. And that money hopefully can stay in their pockets so they can spend on other things. I mean, who is better at spending your money, you or you know uh, an official somewhere?
0: And we did see a lawsuit filed uh, against hart over the delays and and that's a concern because you're just wondering you know kaching kaching over the legal fees and trying to have some kind of settlement there between the contractor and hart
2: yeah there has been a lot of lawsuits over the years sometimes i wonder if people suing hart are doing it out of a practice of hart paying out a lot of money for these lawsuits, so they might as well sue. But on the other hand, Hart might be negligent somewhere, but the big lawsuit that I'm watching is the Howard Hughes one down at um, Ward Warehouse, Ward Center there, where they're trying to build a building right where they want to build a rail stop, and they're suing. And presumably that's why we can't get all the way to Ala because trying to get through that would just be too expensive. So I guess now I hear the rail leaders talking about tunneling under to get to Ala Moana, which, I mean, if you remember the word big dig <laughs> that comes to mind, that would probably explode the costs if we did that. So yeah, lawsuits are part of, par for the course. We are now entering um, the city core in one of the most litigious cities in America. So that $10 billion is questionable even now that they've stopped short.
0: Anything else that you want to underscore?
2: I like the rail ride. You know, I had fun riding it. It's a nice ride for my toddler and my wife. Sometimes we go on it just for fun, you know, um, and the views are nice. But I always think in the back of my mind, what else could the money have been spent on? You know, at $50 or more per passenger ride, you know, we could afford a plane ticket to a neighbor island. We could afford an Uber somewhere. We could save up for, you know, a payment, a down payment on a car, or they could have fixed the roads in a different way or had some other sort of uh, less expensive solution to the transportation problems. So this is a very expensive, very nice looking, very nice ride solution, but what else could it have been spent on?
0: That was Joe Kent with the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii sharing his concerns about our train, which has cost some ten billion dollars to build, uh, not including the additional burden to maintain and operate the system.
3: Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the Outrigger Waikiki. Hawaii musical artist Kimie Minor performs her annual birthday concert in two sets nightly this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com.
4: We spend every day of our lives eating food. We
5: spend every day of our lives in our body. And yet, most of the messages you're getting as you're growing up are often misinformation from people who might not be as educated in the topic.
0: We'll talk with authors who say they have a science-based and humor-laced way of making peace with your body. That's on the next On Point.
6: Beginning this afternoon
3: at 2, following The Daily. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC. Designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com.
0: Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat is about the loss of ranch land to conservation. A Maui cattleman is lamenting the loss of grazing pasture for conservation purposes. It's a story by reporter Marina Riker. Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad.
7: Good morning, Catherine.
0: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, this was a a story that uh, had lots of eyes on it this weekend. Uh, And, you know, I, I think just because there is this Feeling that we need to do more more about ag, it was just a real curious uh, take on you know, ag or conservation.
7: Yeah, uh, Marina's story, by the way, even though it was posted yesterday, it's still the number one story on our site. Marina is, of course, our Maui County correspondent, and not only is it number one, but there's a lot of comments. It's really got a lot of people, some of them very sympathetic to the rancher, who I'll get to in a moment. Others saying, "No, this is all for a good cause," but. In short, Brendan Balthazar, he's 73 years old. He uh, works on the Diamond Bee Ranch, that's in Upcountry Maui Maui, Kula specifically. And he's been working that land for a very long time. He's put in something like $400,000 of his his own money to manage the property, it's about 3,400 acres. Uh, He's been leasing it since 2006, but here's the problem. Uh, The property was sold by a, a private family trust three years ago, and now it's the state that will control it, the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And they have some plans that are not in line with agriculture or ranching or or raising beef. Uh, They plan to actually conserve over half of the land, switch it to conservation land and probably much more of that land. They will take total control by the year 2029.
0: This was interesting to me because, you know, we did some stories recently, right, about how uh, the uh, DLNR was supposed to turn over some ag lands to the <laughs> ag department. So yeah, it's just, it was so curious.
7: Yeah. And it, and of course, the problem for folks like Brendan Malthazar, who really wants to continue that Paniolo tradition that dates back a century uh, in his family. There's other ranchers, by the way, that benefit uh, from some of the work he's done up there. He's He's cleared invasive trees, he's fertilized the grass, he's built a water system. Uh, but the, the the part from DNR, they don't have to convert this particular land to the Department of Ag. Uh, that is something that uh, was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and what they wanna do instead is, well, they basically wanna make it a, a conservation area that preserves natural native uh, areas. They want a larger fresh water supply. They're planning on Protecting against endangered wildlife. They want to plant something like, gosh, 430,000 trees, which apparently helps uh, reforestation with keeping a water supply going. If you know anything about Maui, drought is always a big concern, and related to that is wildfires. Um, so, this is the goal. If they can make this conversion, uh, the DLNR expects they could produce almost 300 million mm-hmm. gallons of water a year. So, that is a priority, but no, it's not going to the DOA. DLR doesn't have to transfer these particular parcels.
0: Yeah, so it's a shame, you know. I mean, I know we've heard the struggles of, you know, our ranchers, what they do to stay in business, uh, and yet it seems, gosh, do we have to choose one over another in this case?
7: Right, and one of the common laments about the DLR, even from DLR leaders, uh, is that it has staffing problems. That's certainly been a problem. The, the land department did not comment much to Marina, didn't have to say much other than it's still in the planning process. But food sustainability is the other side of that coin, right? We talk about trying to wean ourselves off all the, the food that we ship here uh, to Hawaii, not only food, but energy. Um, but the goal for the department is to actually, this is something interesting I didn't know about, to restore what they call a Mauna Lei uh, to encircle Haleakala, because that's, you know, upcountry is, is where that is. They want to plant koa they want to plant sandalwood the department wants to add new hiking trails picnic areas Uh, there's even talk about growing forest products i'm not quite sure what that's all about but uh, that's another element and of course the the endangered species uh, the ones they want to protect include nene uh, the hoary bat and the silver sword
0: yeah, it's a, a really interesting dilemma that we're faced with. So I guess we'll see what happens. But, you know, he's worried, right? He's biding his time.
7: Yeah, be sure to check out the story. Wonderful photos. I can't quite convey that over radio, but uh, Nathan Eagle, our Neighbor Island editor, really helped a lot. It's just a, quite a quite a sight to see and a heck of a good story.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Chad. Sure enough. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read Marina Riker's story at civilbeat.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: If you're having kidney problems, can changes in your diet actually make a difference? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to a nurse turned nutrition advocate about tips and tricks to help keep the kidneys happy and working well. That's today at 6.30 on The Body
2: Show.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. Hawaii Community
0: The Power of a Picture. Today we talk about activism and printmakers. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning.
5: Good morning, Catherine.
0: Yeah, so tell us about this group.
5: So uh, there's a group of uh, Honolulu printmakers here in Hawaii. I spoke with three, so I spoke with... Daniel Mahi, he's a contemporary digital printmaker. I spoke with even Representative Sunny Ganaden, who's also a, a printmaker. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> apparently he's been a longtime artist. Um, spends most of his time at Honolulu Printmakers, and I also spoke with Mari Matsuda. She's a law professor at UH.
0: And and so yeah, uh, tell us about you know what is it that they're attracted to with this group?
5: With this group in printmaking, they're attracted to what this form of art can convey in a story. So printmaking, for those who don't know, it's a form of art where an artist takes an image and, it tra- and they transfer it over to a flat surface, much like how newspapers were printed back in the day. And back then painting was only accessible to the upper class. So folks when, when uh, in the 1400s to 1500s, they couldn't access it. But with printmaking, it was for the general public to access. and. With printmaking, you can produce multiple images, whereas painting you can only make one. And when artists got a hold of this medium, uh, they can make simple images and create powerful message messages to illustrate what was going on in the world, like the wars that were happening, protests, police abuse, etc. I spoke with Denise Carabinas, who's the executive director at Honolulu Printmakers. She said printmaking is a de- democratic form of art. and here's what she had to say about printmaking
0: of course the artists at that time were so good at representation and doing representational work that they were quite graphic the images had a graphic quality and they conveyed a lot of information within the image so it wasn't painterly per se but printerly so
5: printmakers, makers there's so many different forms of printmaking that i'm still learning about you have woodcut etching engraving lithography And it's very interesting how, especially the old school printmakers, will create their images. Uh, When I went to Honolulu Printmakers a couple of weeks ago, the folks there were showing me how to get these lithostones onto print. So you draw your image on the lithostone, and then you'd have to find a way. You have multiple people to help you put these lithostones onto the print. So imagine, I'm five foot right now, so these lithostones are probably twice my size. They're 120 pounds to lift. So imagine, you definitely can't do that on your own. And so when Sonny Ganadin took me um, and showed me how big these lithostones are when he created his piece, he said, This is the reason why he has to work out because you're constantly trying to lift these stones. And even for me trying to pick it up, I, I gave up. So, um, But these, these images are very powerful and um, it ties into the long standing history of social justice that we have in Hawaii. And so these printers, uh, these printmakers, some of their work highlighted issues with Red Hill and demilitarizing Hawaii, and the standoff with the Super Ferry when surfers and swimmers are trying to block the ship, and the murder of Joseph Kahahawai, Um that last one who I just said, that was Sonny Ganadin's work. You can actually find it in his office, and that's the one where he used that uh, lithostone of Joseph to. Kind of print on like the medium. And this, the colors are actually very captivating. It has a sunset color, but the story behind how he was making this is that uh, these group of Kalihi boys saw themselves in Joseph and saw the history and, you know, his, um, his murder and his story. Uh, he, he said it's more of a form of collaboration. And um, for Daniel Mahi, Uh, Printmaking is a way to pass down knowledge and storytelling for the next generation. And here's what Daniel Mahi had to say.
0: And if we start with the cultural foundation, which is what I've been trying to do in my printmaking, looking at Mo'olelo and how they addressed change and trying to integrate those sayings or those words and those visuals into printmaking, then people can at least have the conversation about who we are without the American government, without the colony, um, and really get into the, the hard part about cultural knowledge and passing down of cultural knowledge, which is who do I want to be tomorrow if I want to be a good ancestor? If all these ancestors left these mo'olelo for me to be a safe haven for me, they're literally writing for me, what am I going to do for the future? Interesting.
5: So Daniel Mahi, his technique is more of the newer form of printmaking. And he took these newspapers that was printed back in the 1800s and will use the messages that were created from Kanaka Maoli and then put into his message. Actually, most of his prints were actually sold by the city and county of Honolulu, which is on display, I believe, in City Hall right now.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, uh, it's a fascinating form of, uh, of, of creating art.
5: I have this new form of respect for printmaking. I've never, never done it before, but after seeing those lithostones, stones, um, I'm a little bit intimidated. <laughs> but um, it's very interesting, the community effort in putting into what you want to portray in these images.
0: Yeah, well, the next time I see a print, I'm going to think about those stones. <laughs> but thank you so much, Cassie.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: That was H.P.R.'s Cassie Ordonio. You can read more of her culture and art stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. How are leaking radio waves uh, affecting ground-based astronomy? Well, we'll hear about the ongoing saga between SpaceX, Starlink, and radio telescopes on your Monday Stargazer.
6: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot ourselves, and that's thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's going on?
8: Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will set just after 9 p.m. Also, keep an eye out for Saturn, which will rise in the east just after 10 p.m. The moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase, but conditions will still be wonderful for stargazing.
6: And something else people can actually spot sometimes, I guess, is the uh, topic you've got today, an annoying sort of one. It helps some people get onto the internet, but Starlink has also been causing some trouble with astronomers. And you've got the latest.
8: Yes, the ongoing saga of SpaceX Starlink and its effect on ground-based astronomy continues. Whilst we know all too well about the visual impact of Starlink constellations on our dark skies and the knock-on effects for ground-based astronomy, There has been little concern about the satellite's impact on radio telescopes. However, a recent survey of radio noise affecting ground-based radio observatories has revealed that the damage to astronomy is not just limited to visible light, with Starlink now interfering with radio telescopes.
6: That's a drag too, because that was supposed to be our key to finding the uh, E.T. connection. How are they interfering?
8: Well, these satellites are leaking radio waves from their internal instrumentation, probably a result of cheap production values. These leaking radio waves are producing a hum of sorts that has been detected by radio telescopes on Earth, even those in so-called radio quiet zones.
6: And because it's in space, I'm guessing the answer's no, but aren't there regulations to stop this sort of thing from taking place?
8: Yeah, you're absolutely right on both points there. The radio band where the satellites are generating interference is actually a protected band specifically allocated to astronomy by the International Telecommunications Union.
6: So in some ways they could get in trouble with some kind of law or regulation?
8: Well, it's not likely due to the lack of laws in this area. On Earth, all electronic devices and appliances have to conform to a set of rules to prevent radio interference from impacting communications and even other devices. However, spacecraft are not covered by this law. So your
6: take is, this thing is still serious trouble, huh?
8: Yeah, unfortunately, astronomy is definitely on the back foot as far as these new mega constellations are concerned. The companies behind them have expressed interest in minimizing their impact, but we have to remember that These are for-profit businesses. Astronomy is a non-profit venture, and it and the protection of our dark skies will most likely take a back seat to the pursuit of profit for these companies.
6: It's Christopher Phillips and uh, another fascinating and enlightening uh, Stargazer. Thank you so much.
8: You're welcome, Dave.
6: And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Yamanalo
3: Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com.
0: Whether you prefer Old English or Pigeon to the Max, this summer's Hawaii Shakespeare Festival on
4: Oahu has something for you.
0: Here's a clip from Measure for Measure.
4: So then you hope of pardon from Lord Angelo.
9: The miserable have no other medicine but only hope. I've hoped to live and am prepared to die.
4: Be absolute for death. Either death or life shall thereby be sweeter. Reason thus with life. If I do lose thee, I do lose a thing that none but fools would keep merely thou art death's fool. For him thou labours by thy flight to shun, yet runs toward him still. Thy best of rest is sleep, that thou oft provoke, yet grossly fear thy death, which is no more. Thou art not thyself, for thou exist on many a thousand grains that issue out of dust. Happy thou art not, for what thou hast not still thou strives to get, and what thou hast thou forgets. If thou art rich, thou art poor, For like a beast of bird in whose back with bearing bows thou bears thy heavy riches but a journey, and death unloads thee. Friend hast thou none, thou hast nor youth, nor age, but as it were, an after-dinner sleep, dreaming on both, for all thy blessed youth becomes as aged. And when thou art old and rich, thou hast neither heat, affection, limb, nor beauty, to make thy riches pleasant. What's yet in this that bears the name of life? Yet in this life lie hid more thousand deaths. Though death we fear, that makes these odds all even.
0: That was a clip from Measure for Measure, which kicks off uh, this week. Uh, and one other midsummer opens next month. Sean Joseph Chu directs the Pigeon production, but we hear first from actor Sharon Doyle, who shares the history of how the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival first got its start in Honolulu.
9: Hawaii Shakespeare Festival was founded by Terry Wong III, Tony Pisculli, and R. Kevin Doyle at the time. And it was dedicated to their teacher in grad school, Terrence Knapp.
0: Ah, yes. And
9: yes, it was dedicated to him and who actually secured the patronage of Dame Judi Dench. So she is patron in name for the festival. They started in about 2001 and the festival takes place during the summer with local actors. They've done the entire canon at this point and part of the festival they're starting to include or they have included other classical
0: work. What's the venue and the schedule for this year?
9: This season, the plays are Measure for Measure, directed by Alex Fox, and One Out of Midsummer*, directed by Sean Chu.
10: One Out of Midsummer is August 18th, 19th, and 24th through 26th.
0: Okay. Well, well Sean, wh- why don't you talk about uh, about this production? What is it that grabs you about this particular play?
10: I first heard about it because I found out about Moku Keabe Big Island, Hui of Theater Makers. That started doing Zoom play readings in 2020, and one of those people that participate is Auntie Jackie Pulani Johnson, who was teaching at UH Hilo in the theater department for years. I heard she had a pigeon adaptation of *Midsummer Night's Dream*, and that was in my Gmail inbox for years. And then last winter, Jordan Cho, who works for the Shakespeare Festival, Hawaii Shakespeare Festival, said, "Sean, do you, why don't you why don't you direct?" I was like, "Um, I don't know. I've never done this before. I've directed scenes." I'm an actor and a musician. And then she's like, no, but we need more people of color directing. I'm like, okay, (laughs) shoots. And I thought, hey, why don't we feature this luminary of our arts and culture scene who just happens to live in Hilo. I had no idea there was all these very talented, very creative people that live on an island I very much love, that my ohana, I have some ohana there. They're doing what we're doing here, but it took, strangely and sadly, I guess for me at least, a pandemic to find out about that okay and as someone who's part hawaiian who whose first language was pidgin, i i feel very strongly about this project and some people in the cast i think resonate with that as well
0: and so what do you say to folks who are let's say purists <laughs> and you're like what <laughs> how dare you sacrilegious
10: <laughs> yeah i think everyone has different preferences you know about shakespeare or performance or art really you know i love bach Some people are purists about that sort of classical music thing, too. But I think there's a plethora of interpretations that people can apply to art, which makes it all the more rich. I would say that there are, for purists, fun little retentions of the original language that you can find in Auntie Jackie's adaptation. And there are deviations, which are really fun for me. (laughs) So I, I think... For someone who really loves Shakespeare, maybe perhaps as literature, I think I would invite folks to think about how pidgin or even Hawaiian culture, cultures that have more of an oral traditional storytelling tradition, that is another form of literature that can... Be also interpretation, I suppose.
0: Well, I I just love how your eyes just lit up. Is that little Kalohi side of you? <laughs> 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 but Sharon, a, a, a talk about you know Measure for Measure and what the audience can expect.
9: Measure for Measure is categorized in in something called the problem plays. Shakespeare's problem plays. They're kind of a mix of tragedy and comedy, and so you'll see a little bit of a stark contrast between the scenes there. It's a problem play because in the content. There's something that Shakespeare included, some content that is representative of some contemporary social problem, but also presented in a comic way. So there's a mix of tragedy and comedy. You could interpret it that Shakespeare knew that people would pay attention if they're laughing. So, he intersports, comedy and tragedy in this storytelling. Some themes in Measure for Measure include justice and mercy, as well as power. There are some adult content. You could uh, you could argue, explicit depictions of violence. So there's some mature content that's being addressed, inviting the audience. A contemporary audience to, to kind of think about it and see how these issues still exist today. So it's more like an invitation for the audience to to think about it. Laugh, yes, but also address the, the issue.
0: I think, was it last year, we may have had a group come to do Shakespeare in the Garden, but I don't know, uh, you folks want to talk about the venues uh, for these plays?
9: Sure thing. Measure for Measure will be at Arts and Mark's Garage, it's a co-op and it'll be transformed into a theater.
10: And One Out of Midsummer's is gonna be staged at, it's a co-production actually with Hawaiian Mission Houses Museum on their outside little Kahua stage. So you'll be sort of in the forest, but not in Hilo or Akaka Falls where the play is set, but in Honolulu. So. When Shakespeare's plays were originally staged, he was writing for a bunch of different audiences. He wouldn't take different classes, But I guess that's the terms we would use today, like whether it be for flattering royalty, whoever held the throne, the aristocrats. But there is also like, you know, crass jokes in there for the groundlings, for everyone to enjoy the poetry, to enjoy the crass jokes, enjoy flattering, what you will. All sorts of things, I think, were involved in the writing to invite folks of different backgrounds. And I think... If you have money and power and privilege and you like your art a certain way, that is your prerogative. But I I think in some ways there's a little of that that is, I would say, maybe anti-Shakespeare in the spirit of his writing, which is for everyone.
9: I say that the enthusiasts, you know what, people love it so much that they want to keep it alive. So they keep producing Shakespeare. Mm. And so, so the Shakespeare Festival is one opportunity for Shakespeare enthusiasts to see it performed. Shakespeare was never really meant to be read. Actually, a lot of Shakespeare's audience were illiterate and they couldn't read. And so, yeah, so that's one thing is see it how it was meant to be, which is, in this case, performed. Now, one thing I like to do about Shakespeare is that I get to be among Shakespeare nerds. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there's some serious Shakespeare fans in my cast Like people who just absolutely they know everything about the histories, how you know, everything. They know which one is a bad folio. I don't really know what the term <laughs> is. But yeah, they're they're very very knowledgeable about pretty much everything Shakespeare. I am a Shakespeare performer. That's what I do. I love performing Shakespeare. I was introduced to some, to some techniques from the playing Shakespeare series by John Barton, I believe. Uh, that was back in grad school, I started doing that. And I really loved how it was broken down and it made me made me understand a little bit more about poetry and the, the work is so complex. Uh, the characters are compelling and um, entertaining. Uh, yes, there there is generally a lot of sex jokes, but that's, you know, hey, that was popular. It's still popular today, right? So yeah, performing Shakespeare, has actually made me a better con- contemporary performer. Mm. So I can apply a lot of the techniques, the understanding and understanding the text, the sounds of the words and the intentions of the characters and all of that. It all applies.
0: Well, we here at Public Radio like, uh, tend to nerd out on things.
9: So uh, <laughs> right. uh, hopefully... Hey, come so... to watch Shakespeare
0: Festival. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Any final thoughts, Sean?
10: I think there's a lot to consider In our stories that we present, whether it's here in public radio, in Measure for Measure, One Out of Midsummer. And I think I can't force the show to not be funny. But there are moments of humanity when the lovers get lost in the forest. People have a change of heart. Those aren't necessarily things to laugh at. There there might be similar moments in Measure for Measure. I just found a copy. So I'm (laughs) going to read it before I watch the show. And I think... Yes,
9: please do. Yes.
10: And I think... When we see shows and present shows and share them with each other, we learn more about who we are. We learn more about maybe a specific culture like East Hawaii pigeon and what these folks might be thinking about and feeling about across and across centuries, too. Right. We're talking about measure for measures from for a different audience. Or you think about the Greeks or or other oral storytellings from in Oceania. The kumulipo is dense like Shakespeare or some of these chants are dense, like like you're kind of you're saying, Sharon. And I think there's something always to be taken away and always to learn more about what it means to be this thing we call human being. <laughs> so I, yeah. I invite people to consider that when they come to watch theater, which is a different form of stories.
0: That was Sean Joseph Chu and Sharon Doyle talking about the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival that kicks off with two productions. Measure for Measure kicks off this week and One Atta Midsummer. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. it for us today tomorrow we plan to have state land director Don Chang in our studio to talk about being on the job as we head into the second half of this year got something on your mind call our talk back line 808-792-8217 you can find the conversation podcast on our website or wherever you get your podcast I'm Catherine Cruz we'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation